thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. On the Vincent, we had a patient that was critical and uh, was 600 miles from Okinawa. Took off and flew at airplane speeds with that patient right to the landing pad at Okinawa in uh, Camp Foster. That golden hour of... uh, patient care uh, is, is extremely important. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And joining me today in the Circle Air Group Studios here at Gillespie Field in San Diego, California, is U.S. Navy Captain Sam Bryant, call sign Flesh. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to have you. Now, you are the wing commander for all CMV-22s, what, in the Navy? Yes, that's true. Uh, so the VRM, the Fleet Logistics Multi-Mission Wing, owns squadrons east, west, and eventually here in Japan. And we'll be in charge of uh, logistics worldwide for uh, U.S. Navy strike groups. Okay. But you are here in San Diego. In fact, Correct. we're practically neighbors. Awesome. Well, tell us how you got there. Where are you from and what was your military path leading up to it? So I'm originally from upstate New York, uh, Ithaca, New York, uh, home of Cornell University and Ithaca College. Uh, I went to the Naval Academy. Uh, by way of the Naval Academy Prep School, and then uh, selected uh, aviation out of there and got my wings. And then I became a, a C-2 Greyhound pilot, VRC World, and I was a uh, C-2 pilot East, West, and Japan. So I had experience all around the world flying C-2s. I eventually became a, a CO of VRC-30 here in San Diego, where I learned to love uh, Southern California. Then uh, after my squadron command tour, I went to the Pentagon, where I was the requirements officer for uh, CMV-22 as we were procuring the aircraft for the Navy, as well as the legacy C-2 Greyhound for sustainment. For my uh, sins at the Pentagon, they sent me to lead the transition for uh, the CMV-22. We started that with the Marines, actually, down in New River, North Carolina. So uh, I surprised my wife with a with a two-year trip to uh, North Carolina, which wasn't on our radar at the time. And then uh, we um, helped set up the community here in San Diego for uh, standing up our wing in our first squadron, which is uh, VRM-30. Uh, and then from there, fleeted up from deputy to commodore, which I'm doing now. And um, we have now three squadrons uh, stood up within the Navy and soon a uh, detachment moving to Japan. Okay. And you get a chance to fly the Osprey. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been flying the Osprey uh, really since 2019, the MV version, and then transitioned to the CMV version. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a pretty neat to get to fly a brand new uh, aircraft uh, in my uh, this late in my career. Yeah, I bet. So. How many hours in the Greyhound? So in the Greyhound, uh, about 3,000 hours. Wow. Okay. And how many in the Osprey? So in the Osprey, I've got uh, just under 200. Well, and you probably don't want to steal too many hours from the younger folks that are out there doing it. Right, right. Yeah, so as, as we're standing up, we uh, we took our first aircraft delivery back in June of 2020. So um, during that time, uh, we had to you know limit the flight hours of the senior folks and let the junior folks get their quals. Okay. Yeah. Well, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, about 
gosh, 100 episodes ago, we had a Marine gentleman on the show to talk about mainly the MV-22, but he did opine on the CV-22 a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are a little bit familiar with aircraft, but he wasn't totally sure. I guess there was going to be some more fuel capability. There's going to be some maybe other differences. So let's talk first off about the aircraft. What's different about the CMV-22 compared to maybe its sibling? So one thing that you'll notice with the different type model series, first off, is the paint. The CV, the AVSOC, uh, Air Force Special Operations Aircraft, is painted uh, a very cool black and gray, and um, the Marines are a, a gray model, whereas the Navy went with a um, white and gray poly paint to identify it as logistics aircraft and not a warfighting aircraft initially. Okay. So that's one of the, one of the first differences. Then the, then the really obvious difference uh, when you walk up to the front of the aircraft is we have a larger fuel bladder in the sponson tanks um, along the fuselage. And then we also added fuel in the wing tanks as well as uh, put a tank in the uh, empennage. And that gave us a significant amount more gas than the CV and the MV. While all three air variants can refuel in the air, we can go 1,150 miles unrefueled, which is significantly further than uh, than the MVs. So, you know, whereas uh, MV would launch with around, uh, you know, just under 12,000 pounds of gas, we're launching with 17,500 pounds of gas. Wow. And uh, it's pretty impressive. Okay. So, and then on top of that, we have some modifications to our comm systems that made us uh, for global navigation. Uh, the HF antenna is something the Marines don't have that the uh, the Air Force and the uh, the Japanese actually uh, variant also now have. And then coming soon to a theater near us, we have uh, a a lot of upgrades to the carrier inoperability systems, such as Link 16, uh, moving onto the airplane, um, which is a huge improvement for yeah. logistics aircraft to be able to play in that environment. And that is, I think, what we could spend most of our discussion on today is it's not just a new airplane to the Navy, but it's really bringing a whole new mission compared to what the C-2 could do. But before we get to that, so the paint, as you said, right, similar to like an E-2 or a C-2. So uh, a little higher gloss. Uh, I'm told that's, I think, a little easier to maintain uh, as far as corrosion goes, but uh, we don't have to necessarily drop anchor on that. But to your point, the MV-22 is more like an F-18, so kind of that dull haze gray for their mission, and that makes more sense to them. Now, as we get to the mission in a moment, is there any discussion happening, though, as far as, right, you might not just be logistics forever. So Right. Well, I think the most obvious expansion that we could be doing right off the bat is is actually expanding what we do with logistics right now. Okay. We're, we're going to and from the carrier, just like the C-2. Uh, however, uh, this recent uh, RIM pack, RIM of the Pacific exercise we did, we did a lot of uh, logistics to and from uh, the L-class ships. Uh, and so that's an obvious expansion that we could do as uh, naval aviation is looking to leverage uh, additional flat tops for aviation missions. When you say L-class, you mean like the amphibious ships, so LHDs, LHAs, LPD? LPD, correct. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So those are all different <laughs> ships to land on. And um, you know, from an aviator perspective, it's it's neat to try to land on some of those different ships. It's actually pretty challenging. Get a, lot, a lot of respect for the uh, the rotary community and what they do. Which you didn't have that choice in a COD or a C2, I should say. You had the field that you were operating out of and then the ship. The Correct. Yeah. Now we can even go to, you know, landing pads and things like that, which is uh, pretty impressive. Right. We've, we've already exercised some of that in uh, 
in the theater. So okay, so practically speaking, the CMV twenty two has had what I mean as you and I are recording this towards the end of September. Is it on its second deployment now? Yeah, so we just got back from our second deployment with Abe Lincoln. The first one was on uh, Carl Vinson. Right. Uh, the air Wing of the Future, I think. Absolutely, it was. yes. Yeah. So uh, the full Air Wing of the Future will include MQ 25, but the additional F 35 and CMV and the additional Growler on board and that sort of thing. And E2D as well is, is a big part of all the Air Wing of the Future complement. Yeah. So just one for one, if you will, for it doing what the C2 used to do, what did we learn from those first couple of deployments? So we learned a lot of things. Uh, I would say that there are some limitations to every new airframe as a compromise. As I learned watching different platforms transition, the F-18 was a compromise from the Tomcat. Sure. I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to comment on, on that. The uh, the Growler was a, was a compromise from some of the things that even the Prowler did mm-hmm. very well. But what we learned is that the CMV is, is not just a one-trick pony. It can do a lot of things that the C2 was not as suited to do. One thing that, that I was really surprised with is how much it was used as a medevac platform. So the C2 required a cat shot if somebody needed to be medevaced from the carrier. And sometimes if somebody's extremely injured or there's an injury that doesn't allow for a cat shot, which is a pretty violent evolution, they had to be heloed off. Well, that only works if you're within helo range. So right away on the on the Vincent, we had a patient that was critical and uh, was 600 miles from Okinawa. And uh, we launched to go get that patient, you know, right around, um, you know, the sunset time and landed and took off and flew at airplane speeds with that patient right to the landing pad at Okinawa in uh, Camp Foster. And there was to the waiting hands of critical care. Um, we couldn't have done that with the C2. The best we could have asked for was uh, if that patient could have taken a cat shot, which they couldn't, we still would have had to land at Kadena and ambulance them over to uh, Camp Foster. So that golden hour of uh, patient care is, is extremely important. Yeah. And you would have had to also do that, I think, in the daytime, right? Wasn't the COD limited to... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So now our pilots fly with NVGs. We have an NVG-compliant cockpit and cabin, and that's a whole new world for me. I'd say when, when people ask what was the hardest thing with transition, it was like putting on goggles and flying around at, you know, 250 knots at 200 feet. And you're like, what are we doing down here, you know, when it's, when it's dark out? But um, it's pretty impressive. I will say it does create a, uh, from my previous night experience in the C2, I'm one of the dinosaurs that, that flew the, the C2 at night of the ship. It's kind of cheating when you, when you put on the night, the night vision goggles and fly around the boat at night, but it's uh, a great capability. Yeah. So as far as the day-to-day stuff, though, moving people, parts, whatever it was you were moving back and forth, was it very comparable, the Osprey to the Greyhound, as far as just the regular kind of vanilla COD mission? So the vanilla COD mission, um, I will say the C2 does that like no other aircraft. It was really specialized for that, and that's what it's really good at. Mm-hmm. The CMV was a compromise in terms of when you mix passengers with their baggage and the way that we load the aircraft. The CMV is faster at loading and unloading than the C2. But we take a hit as far as overall volume from a C2. Okay. Um, so uh, the carriers did have to adjust. It wasn't so much of an issue with Carl Vinson because we had COVID and we weren't moving as many passengers. Mm-hmm. But it became a little bit more of an issue with Abe Lincoln as COVID started relaxing and we went into Rim of the Pacific, which we lovingly like to refer to it as DV warfare because um, we, we fly out everybody from, you know. DV being distinguished visitor. Distinguished visitor. visitor. So everybody wants to come out yes. and see the ship. Yes. And yeah. Of course, now they don't get the cat in the trap that the CT used to That get. is true. Um, but I have heard, and I'm obviously biased towards the new platform, but I've heard that, that people really enjoy the acceleration of the the CMV when we roll down and, and go fast, it's actually a pretty impressive acceleration. Sure. So that still still interests people, and uh, you know, getting to fly in a, in a revolutionary airframe like yeah. this is pretty cool. Oh, I bet. All right. So then, 
you talked about a compromise. So maybe there is one thing it on a one-for-one one basis, it's not as good as what it's replacing, but we are making this decision because now it does all these other things. Correct. Right? So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. What other things now can... I don't even know how to put it, but you know the CMV22 community or that debt or whatever used to be C2, but now it's CMV22. What else can they do that a couple of years ago when I was deploying, they couldn't? So um, one of the big things uh, and one of the reasons that we linked this airframe with the F-35 deployment is we can move the F-35 power module, which is a critical capability. Um, we can't always pull into port, can't always pull into Hong Kong and right. get, a, get a new engine. And the uh, power module is so heavy, uh, you can't unwrap it with high lines between Underway ships. replenishment. Yes. Yep. So sorry. With, with That's the, all right. With the, uh, That's why I'm here. Acronyms. <laughs> uh, so you can use a Super Puma helicopter to uh, vertically replenish, you know, vert rep the engine, but uh, that, that requires you to be fairly close to the, the ship. So our ability to take a power module at range out to the ship is a neat capability. And we did that during our operational test and pr- did that proof of concept. Okay. With logistics for everybody being a challenge, you know, supply chains, whether it's, you know, Amazon or jet engines, uh, you know, sometimes you're constrained and you might need that just-in-time capability uh, to get an F-35 ready to go into the mission. So yeah. we're able to do that. So logistics-wise, it has the ability to do the F-35. What about beyond logistics? I mean, yep. I guess the C-2 probably could have had SEALs jump out the back uh, mm-hmm. on their way somewhere. I don't know if that was ever done, and you can comment if you'd like, but I feel like the CMV now can bring, or the Osprey, I don't know how to abbreviate it, but for Simplicity, um, gosh, I feel like it could do long-range search and rescue. It could Absolutely. do SEAL stuff. I mean, so what yeah. else is it doing? So we could theoretically do everything that the Marines are doing with the plane and those other mission sets. Our core mission sets, we would probably not expand into inserting troops in, in combat unless we had a significantly larger force structure to support that kind of – As far as number of aircraft? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So plus that's not a pickup game. So I'd have to change my training continuum to mm. handle those kind of missions, you know, combat-related combat support missions. However, SAR, uh, especially in the SAR assist or even surface search, we could be doing – we could expand into that stuff pretty easily without a uh, – a lot of changes to how we do things. SAR, the aircraft, does actually have a, a hoist that we could use, um, albeit you'd have to hover much higher. Our air crew would, would have to train differently. We don't have SAR swimmers builded with our squadrons, so we'd have to find a way to co-opt those from a helicopter squadron if we were going to do that. But in the SAR assist mode, I could go out and find a survivor, perhaps kick a raft out at least if they're ambulatory. You know, if, if a F-35 was to be out of helicopter range and, and a pilot was, was down, um, we could go out and locate that. The aircraft has the ability to run search patterns. We could find the survivor, locate them, hopefully get them um, what they need to survive a little bit longer until a uh, asset, either ship or helicopter, could get close. Gotcha. Okay. So I could see that happening in the near future. Uh, and then if we were going to do actual recovery like the Air Force does, that would require some more training and different TTP uh, yeah. trainings, tactics, and procedures. Is there someone probably who is looking at all these things? You guys probably have conferences or meetings. We do, like, yeah. So the, Na- to- the Naval Air Warfare Development Center, and this is something that's that's really been good to see different from when I was in, a, in the VRC world. We didn't have a whole lot of integration with Nautic up in Fallon. I would say like zero. And even the air wing integration was was limited. Now with the CMV, we're, we have been welcomed into the the discussion with the air wing and the Naval Air Warfare Development Center uh, in the realm of, you know, what will we do in a contested logistics scenario where our logistics are challenged? 
which okay. is something we really haven't had to look at as a uh, as a nation in a long time, really since World War II. Yeah, you talked earlier about replenishment, which is always a big deal for ships at sea, whether it's fuel or bullets or food or whatever. Do you? see that becoming part of the role of we're going to help when two ships are next to each other going over and slinging maybe loads back and forth? We could do that. The CMV and the the V-22 in general is not an ideal vertical replenishment vert rep platform Mm -hmm. due to the downwash uh, and the stress that it puts on the the airframe. Um, It can do it. But it's it's sort of a Swiss Army knife. It's not the the honed special blade to do that mission. We we prefer to do that with our H60. So I see the H60 role sticking with that. And then for us, we could be taking the things long range to say a submarine or to a independent deployer and a distributed maritime model, and lowering something down via a speed bag or something like that, like a critical part that they needed for a ship's radar or. In the case of a submarine, some other part that they needed to do their mission. So we could be doing that. And um, there have been some proof of concepts that I think floating around the Internet, there was an, an MV picture uh, replenishing a, a submarine at sea. Wow. And, um, you know, that's something we can do. I suddenly feel, I have to admit, say I'm a little self-conscious, like I'm asking you, oh, it could do this, it could do that. And I'm wondering, is this the kind of thing you guys are fending off quite often uh, as far as maybe Congress or different agencies are like, oh, now that you have this capability, you should be doing all these things. And yeah. right, you maybe as a community are, well, we need money to train to that. Because like you just said, inserting troops sounds to me, right, maybe uh, if I can play the other side of this, what, just go land and people get out the back and take off. Well, yeah. not necessarily, right? You could be yeah. getting shot at. There could be threats and surface-to-air, shoulder-fired, and this, that, and the other, and you don't want to just go into those. So do you find yourselves having to kind of defend, if you will, the community as far as we don't want to do all these things, or if we're going right. to do them, we need the resources to do that? Them? That's really my message is um, if I was going to do mission expansion, one, we need to do that very deliberately. It's You can't sure. just suddenly – expand the mission drastically. And then the force structure is super important. You need the aircraft, you need the people that are trained, you need the pilots, you need the, the training tactics and procedures that are nested in the in the Nautic curriculums. Um, I need people up at Nautic as that are part of the VRM community to be the subject matter experts. You were up there at, at Top Gun and Nautic, and um, that's not a pickup game. And if you're not there regularly, you quickly lose your currency and your relevancy in the fight. Even just flying around in that environment, if you were to you know, have a SAR effort in Fallon, I would only really want the Fallon helicopter guys that are trained to fly in that mountain environment coming to get me because they know how to do that and they train to it. Um, you couldn't just go get any 60 squadron from, from North Island and go do that. So Yeah, and yet I feel like the Navy particularly, but really all the military branches, I'm sure, always have this can-do attitude, right? Like, Give us a mission. We can do it. And that's great. But the, the drawback of that is, well, you do put yourselves and your forces at risk a little bit. And, okay, then did you just essentially sign yourself up for more because you just proved you can do it? And I always tell people, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that guy, Aaron Ralston. Remember, he got uh, stuck in the canyon in oh, Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, what he did was he survived for five days. Then he cut off his own arm yeah. and rappelled down 70 feet and made it like, okay, that shouldn't be the standard. That's right. like Herculean. Right. And yet sometimes I think people look at the kinds of things your community and others can do and say, oh, well, we should be able to do that all the time. Like, eh, no, they write books and make movies about this because <laughs> it's it should be rare. Absolutely. Um, even just the, the pure logistics mission that we're doing right now, we only have two deployments under our belt. So I'm continually reminding our folks that we're not the pros from Dover yet. We've had a couple really good touchdown passes. Now it's time to 
to really hone some of the blocking and tackling of that mission. And then as we look to expand with some of the logistics missions, I think we can continue to get better at that. And then if we were looking to expand into other entirely different critical mission sets, such as you know surface search, SAR, things like that, we would start needing to have the full gamut of training and evaluation and equipment to do that. And not just the training I would submit, right? It's also if I've got aircraft doing that, they're not doing something else. Exactly. So I might need more aircraft or I might need more people because right. an aircraft can fly almost through the day, just got to service it, but pilots need rest. Yeah. Well, that and if, if I was doing SAR on a carrier, CAG would want my aircraft to be sitting there on alert. Right. So I'm not off doing logistics somewhere. Yeah. And if I was even and even standing a shore alert, that aircraft couldn't be broken into for maintenance or other things. So it's it's a dedicated asset. It's right. really basically fenced off during the time frame that you're in that window. So it's a it's a significant commitment. So how many CMV 22s were on Carl Vinson and Abraham Lincoln? Three. So we deploy with three, and that's a that's another big difference uh, that from the C2 to the CMV. It takes three CMVs to do what the C2 did with with two aircraft. And the reason for that is the maintenance takes a lot longer. So that's another thing we learned is that although we've done a lot of uh, accelerated learning from the Marines that we we did for deploying with the Marines in New River and, and learning how they do maintenance, our phase maintenance, which is our planned maintenance cycles, take anywhere from 10 to 15 days. So during that time, you know, the aircraft's down for maintenance and the um, the other two aircraft have to pick up the load. So we're in a model where we have three to make two. The C2s were, were strained in their model because they were really two to make two. Um, and a lot of times, really, the, the metric is two to make 1.5, <laughs> if that makes sense. That's how the military does its calculations. Right. Try flying half an aircraft. But <laughs> but generally, the, each carrier is, is allotted 1.5 logistics missions a day as the metric for theater security operations. So that's kind of what we built the model for the, the CMV around, and it's three to make two. Is there a discussion about four at some point? And if it, again, right, if we have this mission creep, yeah. they might need more aircraft. When I was a skipper of VRC-30, we did a fleet battle experiment uh, actually on Vincent with the Marines, and they flew out HMX-1. And I asked the Marines if you had to support a carrier with, uh, you know, for six to seven months flying around the world, you know, supporting them from shore, what would you do? You know, how would you do it? And they said, I'd take four aircraft and probably 180 people. Hmm. And um, we tested that with the FBE, the, the fleet battle experiment, and it worked out. But when I went to the Pentagon and took that knowledge with me, they said, no way, you get two. And I said, we can't do it with two. And so, okay, so we we agreed on three. And that's really – that metric is actually proven uh, correct. And and, um, we've been able to to maintain our sortie completion rates, uh, you know, in the high 90s, which has been impressive and and testament to the professionalism of our – pilots and maintainers. Yeah. So all the folks there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you provided me some photographs ahead of time. I want to show a couple here and, okay. and let's talk through them. So, sure. uh, the first one we have is what appears to be a CMV 22. I don't know if it's taking off or landing. It's probably not taking off. Landing, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about day carrier landings. Mm-hmm. What is, is it working its way into the case one stack or what absolutely? Is it yeah. So we fly in, as, in during daytime case one, we fly like a fixed wing aircraft through most of the pattern. And this is actually an improvement over the C2 in that our pattern airspeed is about 170 knots. Okay. So I can actually integrate with a Hornet in the pattern. And then as you come around uh, off the 180 and through the 90, you're transitioning to tilt rotor mode. And um, I've got the ability to control my interval as much as I want. I can go as slow as I want to, which is kind of nice. But uh, 
our average closure when we get in close, we, we're looking for about 25 knots over the deck. You know, we, we slow it down to about 10 knots of closure and, and just land on spot nine right on the fantail there. Then we typically taxi forward for offloading and unloading. And then we do a, a short takeoff, a stow at 71 degrees in a cell and do like a deck run essentially, which like World War II in the C1 um, that used to be actually in the C2 natops and oh, wow. still like it never never was taken out. Uh, but you'd never do a deck run unless there was a ship's casualty. Right. Now we do them all the time. And that's the difference actually between the CMV and the MV and CV is that uh, we're much heavier. So we typically take off in the short takeoff mode instead of vertical mode when we're fully loaded to provide that power margin and uh, single engine climb away ability. Okay. And so if you're coming aboard and landing about where this is depicted landing, you're probably coming down last, obviously? Correct. So <laughs> instead of breaking the deck and coming down first, we used to kind of be in the tanker pattern, hawking the deck at 1.2. And then, you know, right away when we saw the last launch off of uh, Cat 3 or 4, we'd, we'd already be in the break and coming around and timing our interval so that we're mm-hmm. first on deck and pull off. Now we're up at the top of the stack and following it down, and we come into the break and then land on spot 9, and then we're offloading and onloading during the the reset and then getting off before the first launch. Gotcha. Now, how does that change at night? Here we have an image of a CMV-22 on the deck at night. Yeah, so at night uh, we operate case three like everybody else, uh, you know, typically at the bottom of the stack for for pressurization with passengers. We try not to be up high um, so that they can breathe. Uh, That's a plus. (laughs) plus, Yeah, so we're typically at the, you know, at the bottom of the the Marshall stack. And the C2 also, would when it would recover case three, would typically be on the COD radial, which was 180 relative. Um, So there'd be a Marshall stack for everybody else. And then, you know, we're directly behind the ship and then come in case three and push just like everybody else and, and come down the... The uh, the shoot the configuration is a lot later than the C two because we want to keep our speed up and then uh, we'll configure um, really just inside uh, two miles and get dirty and okay. come in. But are you turning on similar uh, avionics? Maybe you have got an ILS or so some other reference. That's a that's a, that's kind of one of the bummers is we don't have the ACLS like oh. uh, like the C two. So we're doing CCAs right now. But uh, the future with uh, the joint precision landing system. We will get that, and okay. that's something that we'll have the ability to um, theoretically auto-land this plant. This oh, plant. wow. Tell me about these lights that are on the prop rotors, I think uh, Sweet Pea call them. Yeah, prop rotors. Um, is that for formation flying? Is it for safety? I assume they can be turned off. You may not want— So they're actually a really great, you know, Boeing, uh, similar to the Hornet, uh, put great formation lights on this plane, um, something that the, the C-2 did not fly formation in IFR or in uh, at night uh, because it had terrible— um, checkpoints. Um, whereas the the CMV, uh, we not only have the lights that you see on the rotors, we have them on the nacelles here, and then there's the strip lights that you're used to seeing in a Hornet, the same ones uh, on the empennage. So it's it's very easy to pick your checkpoints at night. One other thing about the lights that is pretty cool is you can you see the solid pattern there, but you can also actually change the pattern of the lights. Oh. So if you're flying a formation at night with multiple aircraft, uh, I can look and see based on the pattern, like who's the lead, who's dash two, who's dash three. And that's a pretty neat thing at night when you're trying to join up. Now, as far as the takeoff run goes, generally, is that only on the landing area or will you also go off the bow? Uh, typically just the landing area. Again, there's there's a lot of jets and other things going on on the on either side of the landing area. So it's a clear area where we can, we can short takeoff. Um, we can take off vertically, but then we're weight limited like the other uh, V-22 platforms. Okay. And I'm curious, do you use a shooter per se, or are you more like a helicopter? No, with... we do. We do yeah. actually. They uh, okay. they uh, they give us the the spool up and and tell us we're clear to take off. So <laughs> so that part is still a little bit nostalgic. Yeah. Um, 
cup some leftovers from the C2 days. Right, right. All right. And let's take a look here in the cockpit. There's two oh, of yeah. you up here. and Yeah, so that's uh, myself and uh, Feather Campbell um, flying to uh, Fallon. Uh, I was going to get dropped off to talk to Nautic a little bit up there. So going over the Sierra Nevadas, you got to get, you know, going over Tahoe. Uh, if you're flying the airways, you got to get up there above 12K. So um, put on the O2 masks. And uh, this uh, aircraft has uh, O-Bigs, similar to O-Bogs, and it uh, produces uh, its own uh, oxygen mixture that uh, – when you're putting your oxygen mask on, uh, allows you to do transits uh, at altitude. The Marines, the Air Force, and, and we, when we're not embarked with passengers, uh, will will fly at altitude to get the better fuel range. And then the folks in the back will just have some that they can walk around with? They have a walk-around bottle, but they can also hook up to the system. Okay. If they're done with everything else, they just sit down and hook up to the system at that right. point. How about the actual cockpit itself, as far as I'm sure it's all very modern, mostly glass at this mm-hmm. point, all nice hands-on throttle and whatever else. Uh, maybe it's not even throttle. I don't know. No, but, it's a throttle. It's okay. actually that was that's something that was pretty easy with my transition. Is it's a it's a power lever, uh, a, a very large one um, with a lot of uh, you know castle switches and and selector switches on it as well. And you just have to think about it in two different regimes of flight, and that's that's the challenge of being a V twenty two pilot. So when I'm in airplane mode, you know it's still faster, slower, trees get, trees get big, trees get small, you know, left, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're in tilt rotor mode, when you start using your thumb, the thumb wheel to, to modulate the nacelles, if I'm flying in formation, for instance, in, in tilt rotor mode, now my closure is actually my thumb. So moving the nacelles forward gives me increased closure, you know, moving my nacelles slightly back helps me uh, reduce my closure with uh, my, my lead. And then adding power actually makes me go increase in altitude. So it's different. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Aircore Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Aircore Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. I've not flown a helicopter, but it sounds a little more like that. It does, except it's opposite. In fact, some of Uh our helicopter folks that have transitioned, we're always briefing them on what's called collexia, like dyslexia, but with the collective. And so to add power and go up in a helicopter, you you pull up on the collective. Well, it's the opposite with with a CMV. So you actually push power to increase your altitude. This was actually a problem when we when I was learning with the Marines initially because all my LSO training, you know, if somebody yells, you know, Jello power, what, what's your what's your left hand doing? Forward. Yeah. So uh, we're coming in for a tactical approach, and one of the procedures is is you go to idle power to slow down at about three miles, and start uh, slowing down the the plane, and the instructor yells power, you know, because he means. He wants me to pull power. And so I go to I go to Mill and he's like, What are you doing? And I'm like, Well you, you told said, me he said power. And he's like, Oh, I meant you know. Yeah. So we had to talk through that. And it's like, so things you want to cover in the brief with vernacular, 
based on what your background is, uh, that's something we've had to work through. As a I community. bet. Yeah. Well, you had again three thousand hours, and you didn't tell me how many traps, but I'm sure it was a lot. Yeah, like three hundred something. Yeah. And you were a landing signal officer, right? I was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, squadron qual, but yeah, enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, Waved no with the uh, CAG three. All right, so we talked about folks in the back and bags and all that. And one thing I noticed right away is in the C2, you faced backwards. Correct. Which was interesting. That's uh, to dissipate the uh, the shock of the trap. Uh, it was definitely interesting during a catapult shot, though. Oh, yeah. We'd see well, it. they had you lean forward and kind of mm-hmm. go into your straps a little bit. Um, how about, though, again, right, DV warfare, you called it. Um, can you take the same number? I don't know if we talked about that before. So we take a little less a less passengers. However, the big challenge we've had is uh, the baggage. So the Marines would typically put the bags in between uh, people, but everybody that flies on, on a Marine MV-22 has done water survival. A lot of the the grunts that, that fly with them, the ground troops, uh, have done some sort of water survival in the pool with all their packs. So when we're taking out distinguished visitors in the Navy and um, and regular uh, people coming to and from the carrier, they're not typically water survival trained. So uh, we've come up with some other systems to transport passengers and cargo at the same time and bags as well. And they're called a joint mobility container. And uh, and what we do with that is it slides in and, and – um, ties down to the deck and we throw the bags in that. So gotcha. decreases our seats a little bit. Okay. But not everybody who uh, starts off inside ends up inside, right? So again, we talked about this. You could, even with the C2, you could lower the ramp in flight and theoretically send people out. In fact, you've done that for football games. And yeah, I've jumped out of a frogs. C2 with the, uh, with the leapfrogs. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but again, so we could theoretically take a squad or I don't know what they would call themselves, but uh, of, of special forces people and mm-hmm. let them get where they're going. Yeah, so we actually train with the SEALs a fair amount, and I was actually surprised about this. I always thought, you know, with the layman's terms, big prop rotor versus the smaller C2 prop arc, I thought that the, they would have a lot more trouble jumping out of it. But actually, they uh, prefer jumping out of the V22 over the C2. One, the cabin is much taller, so they don't have to hunch over. They can okay. they can stand up and do all their checks and walk to the ramp. But when they jump out, the airflow is extremely smooth in airplane mode, and they prefer it. And then you talked earlier as well about the CASEVAC, casual casualty evacuation, Correct. I suppose. And so what? We can roll folks on straight on their gurneys, tie them down, yes. and they're not getting that violent shot. That, again, for someone who's in bad condition, that could be an issue. Yeah, and even some of the modern medicine stuff that's going on now with aviation and en route care, we can hook the en route care monitors up to the aircraft's communications and, and theoretically transmit patient vital statistics onto the follow-on care so that they know what's going on. They can start monitoring the patient en route. This picture is actually kind of interesting because this is on the HMS Queen Elizabeth. Uh, We actually did, during the Vincent deployment, some international cooperation missions where we flew to Queen Elizabeth. And that's another thing that the C-2 can't do because Queen Elizabeth is a, you know, one of the ramp carriers with F-35 and helicopters. And they particularly like the, the CMV option because uh, their, their carriers are limited by a helicopter range for any of their logistics or medevac, whereas we, um, we can come aboard and uh, help them out. So that's another mission expansion, especially when you're looking at uh, near-peer competitors, is we're going to rely a lot on our international partners. So our mm-hmm. ability to have interoperability with those international partners, most of which do not have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. I think it's going to be a really big uh, plus for us. Yeah. Just a side note for the pilots in something like this. So there's so many different ships. Do they each have somewhat of a standardized light system that you can use? Or have you just been trained, hey, we know that at a certain angle, things look a certain way. We'll just take it slow. I mean, So 
it, we actually have to train specific to the ship class usually, uh, and so we have um, charts in our in our pocket checklist that show us the wind envelopes for for every ship that we're clear to land on. And our simulator is another thing that's really great about having a new program. Our simulator is state of the art, and we can put a LPD or you know a CVN or whatever ship we want. It has the appropriate lighting and uh, and landing area, so you can practice on the difference between landing on a an LPD versus uh, CVN. It's, it's pretty challenging. It gave me a lot of respect for a whole new world of uh, helicopter black magic that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's pretty challenging. You know, we talk a lot about in the tailhook community of landing on a CVN at night. Pitching smaller ship at night, um, trying to put it on a very small spot is also pretty, uh, pretty scary. I can imagine. All right. And then we have a photograph of looks to me like an engine, but I think you called this, what, the unit or something? Yeah, so it's a uh, F-35 power module. Power so that, module. Yeah, so the engine itself is, is huge. It wouldn't fit in, a, in a, uh, any of the Navy aircraft that land on a ship. You have to put it in like a you know, a C-130 or something. Including a C-2. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It would not fit in a C-2. Okay. This, this would not fit in a C-2. It's too tall. Oh, wow. So, uh, and the weight also is uh, pretty significant. Each one of these engines uh, is about uh, 8,000 pounds. So okay. 7,500 pounds or so. And so um, the ability of the CMV to get this even in the plane and then fly it out to a ship, it was a significant uh, victory for uh, for Navy. Yeah. And is this specific to the F-35C or can you also, I mean, here it is shown inside now, but could you also go help the Amphib folks? I mean, I assume they we have could, spares yes. on. but Yeah, the very first one that was ever flown was actually to an Amphib by an MV. For so, an F-35B? Yes. Huh. So um, the power modules are pretty similar. Uh, there's there's definitely some specificity to, to each TMS, but we can we can haul it all. All right. Well, I have some listener questions that right. yeah. uh, are so from our are. Patreon supporters. These are folks that support the show financially, so they get a perk where I tell them I've got an interview lined up with someone like you, and so, uh, so they ask them. Uh, the first is from Jake Clark, and some of these we might have already handled, but uh, at any rate, Jake wants to know, the CMV-22 can obviously function in many ways. The C-2 cannot. Does the Navy plan to use it more of a multi-mission role instead of purely COD? Will it maybe take on some of the MH-60s mission? And again, we've kind of talked around this, but that last point, I think, is an interesting one. Yep. You made a case earlier for, no, we need to keep a lot of 60s on at least a carrier, I assume. Um, so do you see it threatening, if you will, any of the Seahawk uh, missions at all? Well, thanks for your question, Jake. Um, what I would say is that I don't see it threatening um, the uh, MH60 mission. And that's but, my word, not yeah, Jake's. But. but I would say that, yeah, there, there has been talk of mission expansion uh, in the realm of uh, submarine warfare. Um, and so um, the Marines have done some work with uh, carrying uh, torpedoes and sauna buoys and that sort of thing, just to see proof of concept. So the aircraft could do all that. It's just, again, I would need the ability to have enough aircraft and the pilots trained and the systems on board to do that mission well. Because the MH-60 is a Death Star. It's got a lot of great systems that protect the carrier and also prosecute subsurface contacts. And really no other aircraft uh, in the inventory does it like that. So, you know, we would we would be a, a poor substitute at best for a lot of what it does. So as far as the rest of the mission expansion that the 60 does, though, I think we could definitely take some things to 11 that the, uh, the 60 does well but just doesn't have the range. So, uh, again, with SAR uh, efforts that are out of a helicopter range, Logistics efforts that are out of helicopter range, medevac, you know, even uh, theoretically combat search and rescue might be something that we could look into. However, that yeah. specifically is a whole whole new kettle of fish that, uh, you know, AVSOC spends lifetimes training to. Right. 
It's not something you just go do. Right. And you made that point now many times, right? It's I need the the dedicated training, which means I also need the tactics and procedures to train to. I need the people to do it. I need the money to do it. I mean, all these things cost money. And I need the aircraft. So it's not just something we're going to snap our fingers and uh, go do. And and that's kind of what people say. What does a Commodore do exactly? What, What is it you do here? That's a fair question, but really what, what I do is uh, provide the, the right people uh, for a job, and then I train them so they have the right training, and then make sure the equipment is ready to go, and everything comes up on step for the deployment. So if we expand the mission, you know, I'm advocating for the warfighter, the CAGs, you know, or the strike group commanders or expeditionary strike group commanders to have what they need to deploy effectively. Yeah. So it's challenging. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right, before I get to the next question, I don't know if your microphone's picking it up or not, but one of the issues with having, of course, an aviation-themed uh, podcast at a studio at an FBO is you get some aircraft noise outside the window. So. I barely even hear it, because no, I'm, I'm, and it's, like it's, 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 always, it's always in my background. Oh, that's true yeah. for you, yeah, for sure. All right, so Gundog4314 says the Marines needed more maintenance folks when they switched from the CH-46 to the MV-22. Will Navy squadron slash debts personnel requirements be larger or smaller? So compared to the uh, detachment right before, let's say, the Carl Vinson and then the Carl Vinson detachment, how was the size of the folks involved? We talked about the number of aircraft. What about the number of people? So it's a lot more, actually. Uh, So a typical C2 detachment is two aircraft and around uh, 45 to 50 people to support that detachment. And, And for the CMV detachment, we're three aircraft and about 86 people. We sent a few more people in the initial attachments to get cross-training and that sort of thing, but it's about 86 people, so it's significantly larger, and by extension, the squadrons are significantly larger. So, you know, my my fleet squadron, VRM-30, on the West Coast, that skipper's got a lot of responsibility. He's going to have, you know, just north of 500 people, which is a pretty big squadron. Yeah. Will a lot of the people, those 80-some-odd, you said, be ashore? Because in the old days, right, the C2, most of the folks moved to the shore and kind of leapfrogged, or maybe that's not the right word, but Lily Lily piloted out to the carrier and back. Yeah. Are a lot of people shore or on the ship? Because there's only so much berthing on the right. ship. Right. So most of the people are, are uh, flown ahead and off the ship. So we'll, we'll use uh, our NALO strategic lift or commercial air to fly most of the attachment ahead for an advanced debt to the next logistics site. And then um, we keep a small group on board. And sometimes when we're actually – we finally already get across the, the Pacific, we'll move from logistics site to logistics site and not even come aboard the ship. So, gotcha. But we do have a maintenance attachment, and this is because we're in what I like – what's called an orphan airframe. We're the only airframe similar on the ship. So uh, we have uh, 15 people on board at all times that are a maintenance debt that handle all the troubleshooting, launch and recovery, and safer flight duties on board the ship. Uh, we used to lean on the – the VAW squadron as a C2 community a lot more than we, we land about eight people on board. So now we have 15. All right. So the next question is from Jevin, who says, would emergency procedures for engine failure in a hover be different at the boat compared to overland? Uh, not really. Um, I mean, it's, it's really the same, the same procedure. Uh, the, the difference with the, uh, the ship is you're going to have relative wind, which is actually going to help you a little bit more because the carrier is moving through the water. So that would actually help give us a little more cushion at the boat yeah. so, than, than at the land. Yeah. 
Well, or the just natural wind over the ocean is good enough. But yeah. either way, we've got some wind. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Robert Douglas Miller says, same cargo space, parentheses, weight and persons, et cetera, speed, fuel, distance. And what about training pilots from C2 to MV22? So I'm not quite sure the first part of that, but l- let's either take you, what might be a bad example, because you had a lot of time in the C2, but how about a mid-tour lieutenant, lieutenant commander who spent the first half of his career in the C2 to Robert Douglas Miller's question, what are they going through to finish their career in CMB 22s? So um, I'll, I'll answer the first the first question, and then I can also give you a little background okay. on what our Cat 1s are doing out of Pensacola just sure. so they can understand. But the for a fleet aviator that's transitioning to the CMV, they don't have to go back and retrain in anything. It really doesn't matter whether they come from a helicopter background or a fixed-wing background. You go right to training in the V-22. Okay. Now we have an F, a fleet replacement squadron in San Diego that started training VRM-50. So uh, our pilots come to VRM-50 here in San Diego, and they uh, they jump right in the fleet aircraft. Well, first the simulator, obviously, but then they go to the aircraft. And there's really no... Um, requirement to fly a training aircraft before that. So the transition is really just explaining the differences. There's a whole aerodynamics lecture for tilt rotors that's a lot more in-depth than what I ever got in fixed wing, uh, and it's even more in-depth from what I'm told from the, that the helicopter folks get. Uh, so it's just understanding the different flight regimes thoroughly before you get in the plane. And you have to be able to have that switch in your brain installed that I that I described as a tilt rotor pilot. Um, and you have to be able to think at all times, am I more of a fixed wing aircraft right now? And then I do these control inputs and then when i switch to a tilt rotor aircraft i do completely opposite inputs Mm. so that's a really big uh that's the biggest transition for everybody is um being able to have the situational awareness to know what's going on and your scan pattern changes uh what you're looking at in the cockpit the software uh switches over and gives you different displays so you really have to understand you know what you're doing i guess it would be a kind to when you're flying around with the ship in a, in a fixed-wing aircraft and then you're getting forward on the mission and you transition to, like, okay, now I'm doing executing the attack, you know, and, and employing weapons, it's a whole different bunch of pages and a whole different sort of thought pattern that's going on in your head. Um, it's very similar to that. Okay. So you're almost not compartmentalizing, but maybe. But it's, you know, like you said, right, when I was out in my F-18... I was thinking about my mission, but man, when that was over, if it was a night landing, I yeah. started thinking about that right, right away. Right. And so it's just a function of whatever you're doing next. Yeah, and I yeah. think naval aviators, whatever we're flying, that's what makes us unique is I think our ability to compartmentalize mm-hmm. and be able to do to multitask and, and adapt to those kind of things is really, really impressive. Okay. Niels Hansen says, as a career soldier, which he is, I'm a firm believer in simple, reliable, replicable. The Osprey is an extremely complicated machine. What differences are anticipated in operational readiness rates versus the Greyhound? Uh, And he's got a couple extra questions. What is the comparison of these rates between a newer but more complicated aircraft versus a simpler but older platform? Uh, And again, I think he's drawing the comparison between the two because they haven't been making Greyhounds, what, for a long time? Yeah, the last one went off the line in like 82. But they're still making, you're still taking delivery of new Ospreys. So you said earlier that it was a bit more maintenance and I didn't ask you, but I was thinking to myself, you know, the complexity, I would assume, Mm -hmm. of the tilt pods, I think uh, Sweepy called them. But, right, so this is a bit yeah. more of a complicated yeah. aircraft than so, the C2. So our, uh, you know, our nacelles, the the engines, I mean, it's a it's a phenomenal feat of engineering if you think about it. Um, most fixed-wing aircraft, you know, when you're pumping hydraulics through and, and oil through an engine, it only does it, you know, in the horizontal plane. Well, now take that engine and move it vertically. Mm. 
just think about all the you know the um, scavenge pumps that are required to keep that the same pressure to all the components uh, in the vertical mode too. So just that alone, uh, the aircraft is much more complex, and so uh, with that comes uh, intensive maintenance. That's true of most modern aircraft, though, in the in the fleet. Um, the F-35 is a Gen 5 aircraft. We're more of a Gen 4 aircraft. Um, the C-2 is simpler to maintain in some ways. Like an older car, there's not as many computers. Mm-hmm. But I will say that the C-2, uh, when you break something, the part's not always available because it's an older airframe. And, uh, you know, it really is kind of the luck of the draw when you're on deployment. Do you have a particular airplane that that is that is a troublemaker and you have mm-hmm. to work on it a lot uh, so we, we run into those kind of issues all the time but i will say the operational availability of the first two detachments is what we expected um generally speaking it was around uh you know 67 percent, which is roughly you know two aircraft available out of three at any given time okay when we had major maintenance to do though the aircraft would be away for maintenance longer typically than a c2 so that's why we had the third aircraft Gotcha. And it mitigates our operational availability because that's really what it's about. The CAGs don't care. In the end, they just want their stuff to show up when it's supposed to show up. And that's what what I'm here for, you know. Um, In the end, it's like that's what you're paid to do your mission. So that's why we threw threw an extra aircraft at at the problem. All right. Next is from John Clark. No relation to Jake Clark, I assume. Will the COD mission expand to amphibious assault ships with the vertical takeoff and landing capabilities of the CMV-22B? You already said you've yeah, made some so runs. We're already doing that. Yeah. Um, we, uh, In fact, uh, one of the, the flexible options we had is uh, one of our aircraft got stuck in Japan um, on the Abe Lincoln debt due to a, a prop order gearbox change. So um, it, it got left behind by the carrier. Oh. Um, so what I did was we uh, we actually flew a bird from San Diego aboard USS Essex and went out to RIMPAC and, and put uh, that, that aircraft back in the fight with uh, for RIMPAC. And so uh, right there, you know, we're going aboard other ships. Um, we're getting seeing increased tasking from the expeditionary strike groups. And so I think that's something we'll naturally expand to. But again, as a Commodore, I want to see more aircraft and more people to support that mission. Yeah. All right. Jason Spears says, what is the training syllabus? Now, we've touched on this a little bit, but he goes on. uh, Do they get rotor trained first and then the Osprey, which you said no. But um, So actually, that's a, you know, not not to enter, just with the, the, um, if he's speaking to the uh, initial training down in Pensacola, they do get, um, if you're a brand new aviator, you go to both rotary and fixed wing training. Yeah, so I sort of abused his question here. But so, right, so let's just, for the sake of simplicity, for someone coming out of flight school uh, mm-hmm. or going into flight school, let's say, probably they start with the T6. I think everyone does now, yep. at least in the Navy. Then where do they go after that if they're going to ultimately end up an Osprey pilot? So um, this is where uh, we, we look to save a little money. So based on where they do their primary training, if it's in Pensacola or Corpus Christi, they go to the next intermediate stage in that same location before they PCS, oh. So before they change their station. So so if they're in Pensacola, they'll go to North Whiting and do uh, a helicopter syllabus, and then they'll go to Corpus and do the multi-engine uh, King Air syllabus and get winged. If they get primary in Corpus, then they'll do multi-engine in the King Air and then transition up to North Whiting and finish off uh, in helicopter. So you can get winged out of either one. It just right. depends on where you started. Uh, there's no culmination, uh, you know, carrier qual event like uh, I had or you had. That, right. uh, but they have to have both. Uh, yeah. And that's to give them the, uh, you know, the background in both. Has anyone looked at the order they receive it to see if that makes a difference in performance? Uh, we haven't 
got any data to support that it would really changes the performance. Um, I think each one is kind of a, um, I won't say stovepipe, but they both build on each other in different ways. Right. So I think that um, naturally somebody would be better at instrument flying when they show up from Corpus Christi to North Whiting because they've had you know no, continuity and training and going to the, the, the T-44, which is an extremely you know instrument-intensive training. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Um, you know, in, in, at North Whiting, they still do a lot of instruments, but uh, not to the degree that they do. And uh, so there may be some something there, but um, yeah. not to the degree, if I think, of inhibiting actual overall graduation rates or anything. Gotcha. All right. Well, I think we answered the last question from Scott Manning. Does the COD mission of the CMB-22 differ in any way from the C-2? I think we talked about that towards the beginning. Yeah, it fundamentally changes how the strike group uh, – does logistics in that we are a we land at, at, you know whether we come in like a fixed wing or not at the end right. we land like a like a helicopter so it changes the way that we move things around the uh, the flight deck uh, it changes uh, the way that um, supply officers have to prioritize their logistics because we have less volume so um, we need to make sure that it's really high priority if it's coming out with us hmm. you know sometimes toilet paper is super high pri if you're flying in and out of uh, Thailand but in general uh, we're we're trying to focus on the high priority passengers high priority parts. And, uh, and yeah. that's what we're prioritizing. So speaking of that real quick, so in my F-18, if I was carrying back some bombs that I didn't drop, let's say, I would have to manipulate my fuel to be at a certain weight when I landed. Mm-hmm. I assume the C-2 was the same. You can correct me if I'm yep. wrong. What about the CMV-22? If you're bringing your heaviest load aboard, mm-hmm. can you bring – do you just don't worry about fuel or – so the the nice thing about uh, one of the redesigns that we had that I didn't cover is that we um, designed the fuel system of the CMV. The uh, MV, uh, the fuel dump, came out of the side of the plane. And actually, uh, it's an emergency procedure to dump gas uh-huh. uh, in a legacy MV, like a, Bra- like a Bravo MV, because uh, it would go all over your, uh, your ASC. Uh, ASC? Uh, so your survivability equipment like your chaff flare and all that uh, stuff. Okay. So aviation fuel going over, all over your chaff pods is not a good <laughs> no. thing. So they don't dump gas unless it's an emergency. For us, ours goes out the tail, similar to the CV. And the, and the modern uh, MV Charlie's now did that modification too. So we actually can adjust gross weight is what I was getting at that um, allows us if we needed to, to do that. However, uh, taking off and landing in a uh, short takeoff mode, which we can do, actually um, allows us to take off at max weight. So in Bahrain, for instance, the C2 would be limited by performance, limited gross weight. So you'd have to light load on gas hmm. at your max cargo weight in a hot environment. Right, in the summertime. Yeah. Not particularly high elevation. Right. But you got one of the yeah. high, hot, and heavy, right? Or exactly. So with us, if we if we short takeoff, it actually uh, um, keeps you in the really good part of the flight envelope where you can get airborne uh, and be have a safe single-engine climb away speed at max weight. So what is the future of the CMV-22. Let's start with how many do we have now, you, yeah. uh, and how many are coming, and what other modifications do you see coming? So we have a, a programmer record of uh, 48, which is, uh, you know, Congress has agreed to uh, take options on 48 aircraft. Um, what well, remains to be seen with budgets and things, how, what that what that levels off at. But uh, we've taken a delivery of, uh, of 20 aircraft. They're coming to us from uh, the Amarillo plant for Bell Boeing. They start off being built up in Philly. Uh, the fuselage, the entire fuselage, uh, pretty much everything that's inside the wing route here is uh, built in Philadelphia uh, at their Ridley Park plant. And then it gets shipped down to um, uh, Amarillo, Texas, and they mate the uh, the wings and the, and the engines and uh, prop rotors. And then they deliver them here to uh, North Island. So we'll have uh, – we, we're generally getting about one a month um, – for the foreseeable future. Okay. Um, we took our first delivery in June of 2020, 
and then went on deployment a year later. So if you wow. think about that, that's really what I'm, I'm just impressed to be part of the community because those guys did a great job of, of deploying safely. When you think about how much time F-35, who we were married up with on deployment, um, they already had an operational squadron, FRS with aircraft in Lemoore, and had done all their operational tests and all that stuff. And we were actually doing operational tests during Comp2X and, and still managed to deploy safely. So <laughs> it was a truly just-in-time yeah. deployment. Are you seeing some grumblings, though? That's the wrong way to put it, but you get the point about maybe not getting the number. Like, right, they were supposed to build, what, 750 F-22s, and they built 175. Is there some indication that you might not get the full 48? So I think, uh, I mean, budgets are still remain to be seen, but uh, I have a feeling, based on hearing some of the CNO's comments at, at Hook, uh, and and definitely the appetite in the fleet for um, logistics and some of the expanding mission sets. I think it's a very positive environment where we could end up seeing at least the program record, if not more, right. in the future. So we'll see. All right. Yeah. How about the future for Sam Bryant? I mean, come on, you can't do this forever. I'm sure you're having a good time. <laughs> well, um, I've, I've done everything I've wanted to do in the Navy, which is pretty a pretty blessed place to be. And as I was saying, I'm having so much fun right now, still getting to fly uh, at this point in my career coming up on 27 years. So, wow. you know, if they're still paying me to, to fly airplanes, that's a pretty good place to be. So, okay. happy. If that ends, then uh, maybe time to move on or just see what the Navy offers you or what's what's the deciding factor to stay or go? Um, I think uh, I think that um, the hard part about leaving the Navy for for anyone is the you know you're constantly surrounded by by meaningful work and really great people yeah um, and it's hard to duplicate that anywhere in the you know outside the the Navy so you know as I as I look to the future and think about transitioning um, that's something I would I would I would miss a lot I think part of the reason that you know I enjoy listening to this podcast is that you you know you feel a real camaraderie and uh, brotherhood that is not anywhere else yeah so that's a hard thing to to walk away from it is i can tell you from the other side it is and yeah. if you decide to go say to the airlines while they do good work uh it's just not the same yeah and i tell that all to my to my junior officers as well is that uh you know obviously there there's a lot of hiring going on and it's a it's a great uh um you know future in that in that industry uh, there is there is a trade off though, and yeah. you don't you don't get that same ready room uh, aspect right. and um, the satisfaction of uh, of of meeting the mission that you, right. that you do anywhere else. Right. So, yeah. And my last question for you is, and I'm a little nervous about this one because I've known you a long time, Sam, yeah. and I've never had the guts to ask you Uh-oh. how someone came up with flesh oh. for Sam Bryant. So this this makes me a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually not that exciting, but it's no. uh, the problem is is that I often get stuck with uh, being the details guy. Okay. So uh, you've heard of the term flag officer, bright ideas, and general officer, bright ideas. Uh, you know, people have the good idea fairy. Someone else has to someone, go. Someone else has to actually go do the work. <laughs> and so uh, it was pretty typical at the Pentagon where, you know, they come up with this, these grandiose plans and then they look over their shoulder because I'm always the guy sitting in the, in the back. I'm not at the table. And, you know, say, oh, why don't you go, why don't you go flesh that out, you know. And so um, I put the meat on the bones of things and, and – uh, finish things <laughs> awesome well you sound like you're the right guy for the job and so i want to thank you for your service to this country and obviously everything you did for the cmv 22 community sounds like the transition is going well and i want to thank you for your, your time coming on here on the fighter pilot podcast it's a lot of fun sam yeah it's my pleasure thanks for having me all right you're welcome this episode of the fighter pilot podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the circle air group fbo on gillespie field in el cajon california 
Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.